This week, PG&E debtors, ad hoc noteholder group reach a deal, McDermott files for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas, Judge Isger approves Alta Mesa, and Kingfisher asset sale to BCE Mach. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm reporter Connor Skelding. And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Later this episode, the LATAM team will run through Argentine sovereign and province restructuring, plus overviews of Gran Tierra Energy and the Argentine power sector. It's Sunday, January 26th. A settlement was reached last Wednesday between the PG&E debtors and the Ad Hoc Noteholder Group. The Ad Hoc Group will rescind its competing plan upon approval of the RSA as a result. The agreement would resolve all issues related to the treatment of pre-petition funded debt, including post-petition interest amounts and make-hole premiums, according to a release. Pre-petition noteholders would exchange $7.95 billion of unsecured notes for new lower coupon notes, saving the company approximately $1 billion, while reinstating approximately $9.75 billion of other unsecured debt, according to the RSA. The debtors also agree to, quote, use commercially reasonable efforts to file an amended plan by February 1st. Governor Gavin Newsom and the Utility Reform Network, or TURN, also filed objections to the debtor's amended exit financing motion, which seeks approval of over $1 billion in backstop fees for $46.35 billion in plan funding commitments. The governor argues the debtors, quote, continue to refuse to modify their plan such that it would, quote, satisfy AB 1054. Turn argues that the proposed backstop fees would not, quote, benefit the estate if plan other than the debtors is confirmed. The debtors filed a motion to dismiss the adversary proceeding and class action negligence complaint that asserts at least $2.5 billion in damages arising out of PG&E's fall 2019 planned outages in Northern California, or PSPSs. The motion describes the complaint as an attempt to relitigate the decision made by the California Public Utilities Commission, or CPUC, to authorize their wildfire safety plan, which included a program to, quote, temporarily shut off power in areas with, quote, potentially deadly fire risk. Allowing the complaint to move forward would have, quote, grave consequences by interfering with the CPUC's and PG&E's decision-making in interest of public safety, the complaint states. McDermott International filed a prepackaged Chapter 11 plan in the Southern District of Texas on Tuesday, following weeks of negotiations between interested parties. Under the terms of the prepackaged plan, as disclosed in a restructuring support agreement included in the debtor's disclosure statement, secured lenders are set to receive 94% of reorganized equity. At least two-thirds each of letter of credit claim holders, lenders, and bondholders have agreed to the RSA, according to the filing. Lamas Technology would be sold for $2.7 billion, subject to a bidding process, to an entity owned by Chatterjee Group and Roan Group. $820 million of the sale proceeds would fund the debtor's business, 
while the rest would repay the term loan portion of the debtor's $2.81 billion dip facility to be provided by secured lenders. The new money portion of the dip facility includes $1.2 billion in new term loans and $543 million in new letter of credit capacity. In addition to reorganized equity, secured lenders will receive $500 million of take-back term debt. Senior note holders will receive the balance of reorg equity after a contemplated up to $150 million rights offering. LC providers will renew through the duration of the case, afterwards rolling into a combination of an exit LC facility for ongoing bonding needs and a roll-off LC facility, leaving the reorganized debtors with $2.44 billion in LC capacity. Debtors Council described a, quote, fully consensual prepackaged plan at a first-day hearing, and Judge David Jones granted all requested relief. The debtors include to pursue a 60-day in-court process. A final dip hearing is scheduled on February 4th, while the conf confirmation hearing is set for March 12th. The McDermott team discussed the situation in a webinar on Friday. You can listen to the recorded presentation and view the slides on reorg.com. Hit menu and select media. And after a three-day trial and testimony from multiple witnesses, Judge Marvin Isger on Thursday said he would approve the sale of Alta Mesa and Kingfisher's assets to BCE Mock, a joint venture between Mock Resources and pre-petition equity holder Bayou City Energy. The judge was clear in ruling that the sale process and the winning bid were appropriate under the circumstances. He said that the few, quote, minor glitches attacked by the sale objectors, principally the ad hoc group of note holders and UCC, were not sufficient to alter that opinion. Alluding to the party's debate over the appropriate standard of review, he said he would apply a higher standard, but, quote, under any standard, the debtors prevailed today. Regarding the core of the objector's concerns with the selection of BCE Mock's bid, its related required releases of common equity parent Bayou City, Judge Isker concluded that the debtor's investigation into claims against Bayou City was, quote, done carefully, independently, and supervised by completely independent directors. The, quote, minor glitches pointed out by the objectors were, quote, nowhere near enough to change that overall conclusion. As for the potential for claims against Bayou City related to the 2018 drilling program and the argument that they were not adequately investigated, Judge Isger concluded that the only evidence he saw was, quote, an email repeating hearsay and indicating that an investor believed more care should have been put into the drilling plan. Regardless of if this was true in hindsight, the judge said that the ENP business in these geographies is inherently risky and, quote, it's crazy to think otherwise. Regarding the note holder's rival bid, Judge Isger highlighted a series of infirmities related to the plan's structure and noted several reasons for his conclusion that the note holders were not, quote, sufficiently committed to overcome the risk of their plan falling through. Finally, Judge Isger said that he agreed that the 72.5%, 27.5% allocation split of sale proceeds between Ultimesa and Kingfisher, respectively, was reasonable and supported by a fair process. The judge said that he would continue to stay the effectiveness of his approval of the sale until the last day available under the documents. That's February 12th. The stay was put in place to accommodate potential appeals by dissident lenders who were barred from objecting by Judge Isker's earlier ruling, but it does not appear that those lenders have begun an appeal process. 
Nevertheless, Judge Isger said the remaining sale objectors should be able to use that time to bring their own appeals if they so choose. Lastly, as always, as we turn to the island of Puerto Rico, on Tuesday, Monoline Insurers Assured Guarantee, National Public Finance Guarantee Corp, AMBAC, and Financial Guarantee Insurance Co., collectively referring to themselves as the revenue bondholders, filed an objection to the Promesa Oversight Board's response to the mediation team's interim report and recommendation, focusing on the scheduling order related to revenue bond issues. The revenue bondholders argue that the Title III court should hold a final hearing on the lift-stay motions and also stay the revenue bond adversary proceedings pending resolution of the lift-stay motions and the related enforcement enforcement actions. At the center of the objection are the recent lift-stay motions filed by the revenue bondholders and the revenue bond-related adversary proceedings filed by the Oversight Board, seeking, among other things, relief from the automatic stay so that the revenue bond issues can be addressed by way of one or more actions, quote, to enforce the revenue bondholders' rights under the revenue bonds in a forum other than the Title III Court. The objection observes that while the revenue bondholders and the oversight board, quote, appear to agree with the mediation team, that the revenue bondholders' rights should be educated in the near term, as there is disagreement between them and the oversight board regarding the, quote, appropriate vehicle for addressing such revenue bond issues. The revenue bondholders explained that in filing the lift-stay motions and pursuing the enforcement actions, quote, as the appropriate vehicle for addressing these issues, they, quote, are simply following the First Circuit's instruction. They also address the Oversight Board's response, which they assert takes, quote, a series of inconsistent positions on the use of the lift-stay motions and the revenue bond adversary proceedings as potential vehicles for litigating revenue bond issues. Also on Tuesday, Governor Wanda Vasquez said she asked Housing Secretary Fernando Gill to resign over statements he made criticizing the grant agreement issued by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, governing the use of the $8.2 billion of community development block grant funding because such statements were not consistent with the administration's public policy. The governor's statement were issued after Gill denied during a radio interview his firing was related to a scandal provoked by public awareness of a warehouse in Ponce packed with disaster supplies that went undistributed to victims of the series continuing earthquakes that have affected southwest Puerto Rico since December 28, 2019. Quote, we won't allow anything to put at risk the federal funds assigned to Puerto Rico to address the needs of our people, Vasquez said. On Thursday, Judge Laura Taylor Swain issued an order finding that her July 24, 2019 mediation stay order does not bar discovery by creditors regarding the Commonwealth's proposed plan of adjustment and assets. Rejecting arguments by Promesa Oversight Board and AFAF to the contrary. Quote, the fact that substantive issues to which the requests may be relevant and issues regarding priority and scheduling of the litigation of such issues are authorized subjects of mediation does not categorically preclude creditors from seeking discovery under Federal Rule of Bankruptcy Procedure 2004, the judge concluded. 
Nevertheless, Judge Swain determined that AMBAC's contested Rule 2004 motions were, quote, sweepingly broad, stating that she believed they, quote, impose an objectively unreasonable burden on the Commonwealth. The judge directed the parties to narrow the parameters of the requests while providing AMBAC with, quote, core information sufficient to obtain a basic understanding of major aspects of the Commonwealth's financial situation that will be relevant to a plan of adjustment. The order requires the parties to file a status report setting forth their agreed parameters and a timeline for compliance with U.S. Magistrate Judge Judith Gale Dean by February 12th. Other top stories last week were... Fairway commences second Chapter 11 with RSA from Ad Hoc Lender Group, $25 million dip, and $70 million village supermarket stocking horse bid for five stores, distribution center. KKR, PNC Bank, pitched dip financing proposal to board and dairy debtors, say debtors have not responded or engaged since. And Pixis aims to monetize portion of new growth businesses ahead of 2021 maturities. Almost $200 million of cash spent on building products, masks improvement in core tobacco business. And filling in for Jim Holloway, to give you what's on tap for the week ahead is Angelo Thalassinos. Hello, credit enthusiasts, first-time and long-time listeners alike. My name is Angelo Thalassinos, and I'll do my best to provide insights into the week ahead. But alas, I'll be woefully disappointing if you've tuned in for the southern charm and quips of my venerable colleague, Jim Holloway. Let's dive right in. The week ahead, bringing January to a close, begins with an in-court focus, reaches a crescendo Wednesday in terms of overall activity, and then shifts focus to out-of-court events to end the week. This week really does have something for everyone. Court activity is highlighted by a wide-ranging omnibus hearing on Wednesday in Puerto Rico's Title III cases and the latest bankruptcy court hearing in San Francisco in the PG&E Debtors Chapter 11 cases. Last week, PG&E reached an agreement on amendments to its plan of reorganization to get the ad hoc note holder group on board through a mix of notes reinstatement and refinancing and participation in the exit financing backstop. On Wednesday, PG&E is expected to provide the court with a plan update and may touch upon the status of talks with Governor Gavin Newsom. The governor has maintained that the debtor's plan does not satisfy AB 1054 and requires substantial amendments and that his office is pursuing strategies to protect Californians, including through a state takeover of the utility. PG&E is also expected to file a further amended plan now incorporating its agreement with ad hoc noteholder group between now and February 1st. Bankruptcy court activity also includes a first-day hearing for Fairway, the grocer's second trip through Chapter 11, and a confirmation hearing for South Cross, both on Monday. The New York Central Grocer re-entered bankruptcy last week with a $70 million stocking horse bid for five stores and distribution center, with other stores also on the auction block. On the other end of the bankruptcy timeline spectrum, South Cross will proceed with a fully consensual confirmation hearing. Omnibus hearings are also scheduled next week in the Chapter 11 cases of First Energy, Sears, and Philadelphia Energy Solutions, all of which could include case updates. Now let's let's shift gear and talk Tesla, automotive pun intended. Whether you're a fan of their cars or not, or believe that Elon Musk does good at rockets or not, the company reports fourth quarter earnings on Wednesday and will hold a conference call that evening. In early January, the company announced Q4 production of nearly 105,000 vehicles and delivery of 112,000 vehicles. 
The biggest milestone of the week and potential for news may be the expiration of key energies forbearance with lenders on Friday, January 31st. The forbearance with term loan and ABL lenders was entered into at the end of October and has, a, and has been extended twice now. After its unsolicited proposal to combine with basic energy was rejected, Key Energy started exploring strategic alternatives and entered into the forbearance in the fall. U.S. Steel and ADN Global are also reporting earnings this week. The extended early tender deadline in connection with Superior Energy's 2021 senior notes exchange expires Wednesday, but that deadline has been extended twice already, and as of last week, only 2.75% of 2021 notes have been tendered. To end the week, Verso is scheduled to hold its annual meeting where shareholders will vote on directors and the announced sale of two mills to Pixel Specialty Solutions. The $400 million transaction has received all necessary regulatory approvals, and Verso has announced an intention to, in large part, use net cash proceeds of about $336 million to return capital to shareholders in the amount of no less than $225 million. However, large shareholders, including Blue Wolf and Atlas Capital, have nominated a competing director slate and have taken issue with the transaction. And to roll us into February, Frontier has a coupon payment due on its 6.86% unsecured debentures due 2028, technically due on February 1st. The company has a considerable slug of coupon payments due mid-March and has been in talks with bondholders to get signed onto NDAs and discuss restructuring and possible prepackaged Chapter 11 filing. That's all from me on this episode, and until the next episode, stay tuned to Reorg. Next, here's Brandon, Santiago, and Kyle from the LATAM team to discuss Argentine restructuring, Gran Tierra Energy, and the Argentine power sector. Thanks. My name is Kyle Wusu. I'm a senior distressed debt analyst and team lead for the Reorg America's LATAM team. I'm joined here by my colleagues, corporate credit analyst Brandon Liu and reporter Santiago Del Carrillo. And we are going to talk about Argentina, um, both the sovereign and province um, restructurings, um, the Argentine power sector, and then we will discuss Gran Tierra Energy. Um, so let's start off with uh, the Argentine sovereign and province um, negotiations. Um, Santiago, can you give us an overview of where we are currently as far as Argentina is concerned? Yeah, sure. So last week, the province of Buenos Aires launched a consent solicitation seeking to postpone its $249 million amortization payment due date on its um 10.875% bonds due 2021 um, from January 26 to May 1st. Um, the consent solicitation was set to expire on Jan- January 22nd. However, there were rumblings that the province might have difficulty getting the required 75% approval from bondholders. Then on January 22nd, a steering committee of bondholders put out a letter saying that the province undertook the consent solicitation under a shortened time frame without the benefit of a formal bondholder identification process and in the absence of a comprehensive plan for the province's debt. So the province ended up extending the deadline for the consent solicitation to January 31st this week. 
Interesting. So you have um, the the province launching a consent solicitation to postpone um, some amortization payments. Looks like they got some kickback from bond, some pushback, sorry, from bondholders, and then the province ended up extending the consent solicitation deadline. Um, so how does this all relate to the the sovereign restructuring that's expected? So. In a speech on January 21st, uh, the economy minister of Argentina, uh, Martin Guzman, asked uh, Buenos Aires province's creditors for support to the province's proposed amendment to the 2021's terms and to delay the amortization payment. He said uh, in, a, in a speech, a press conference that he, he gave, under coordination with the federal government, the province is asking bondholders time in good faith and responsibility for the needed time to resolve the macroeconomic breakdown that has affected the whole country. Um, and Guzman also noted that the Republic has been acting in good faith by continuing to serve interest payments amid a critical situation and is now asking bondholders in a coordinated way with Buenos Aires province for the same good faith and responsibility to support the province's consensus solicitation. Um, Guzman's comments come as no surprise, given that roughly around 40% of Argentina's citizens live in BA province, and it would be really difficult for the Republic to prepare a credible debt restructuring plan without certainty about the province's obligations going forward. Also, while we're, we are not sure about the exact amounts, based on conversations, we know that there are significant cross-holdings between BA province bonds and the sovereign bonds. Um, several sources have pointed that, that out to us and have conform, confirmed that to us. However, uh, also to take into account is that the Argentine uh, economy minister pointed out the other day there aren't any cross-default clauses that could be triggered between the Buenos Aires province bonds and the sovereign bonds if the provincial government ended up defaulting on its 2021 bonds. Now, so we can get an outlook of the, uh, some of the key players. Um, the sovereign bond financial advisors are Mensana and Bronspan. Mensana, along with UBS Securities, is also working with holders of sovereign debt securities. Yeah, that's actually a good segue. Um, I know there's a lot of different players to keep track of in addition to the, the ones you just mentioned. Um, so can you give us a rundown of the key parties involved in, in both the, the sovereign and PBA restructurings? So on the government side, we have President Alberto Fernandez, and he basically will give the final stamp of approval on the debt negotiation terms. He had said last week that they hope to conclude negotiations by March 31st. Then we have Argentine's economy minister, Martin Guzman, a former Columbia University fellow who focused on researching sovereign debt restructurings. He's viewed as a protege of Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Economics Prize winner. Um, Guzman is coordinating the country's debt negotiations and fiscal policy, but has yet to provide any significant details about the country's proposal. He's then followed by Sergio Chodos, Argentina's representative to the IMF. Um, Chodos formed part of the group that negotiated the government's first accord with the IMF in 2003 with Economy Minister uh, Roberto Lavagna and Guillermo Nielsen, who was a finance secretary during that period. And this occurred after the 2001 uh, default. Then you have uh, Lissando Clary, who the government appointed as to lead the country's newly created special unit for the sustainability of external debt. And another key actor is Buenos Aires province's governor, Axel Kisilov, 
who led Argentina's nationalization of the oil and gas company YPF and also has experience negotiating with the holdout bondholders when he was former Cristina Kirchner's economy minister. And as of yet, the government hasn't officially announced its advisors for the debt restructuring negotiations, but multiple sources suggest that Fernandez's administration will likely appoint Cleary Gopley, Steen, and Hamilton, a law firm that represented former Christina Kishner's government in their negotiation with holdout bondholders, but was replaced by uh, Macri afterwards with another law firm. While the Argentine government sent a request for proposal, or RFP, this week to 15 potential candidates as financial advisors, Amongst those candidates are Rothschild, Lazard, Guggenheim, and the Global, Global Sovereign Advisors, together with a group of banks, according to Reorg sources. Now, on the side of institutional bondholders, as we mentioned before, we have Mensana confirmed, which is represented uh, was, was representing a, conf- a committee of private bondholders of provincial and sovereign bonds. Uh, the founder of that group is Marcelo Del Mar. Um, Broadspan Capital is also representing bondholders of Buenos Aires province uh, bonds and UBS as a financial advisor to sovereign bondholders. Now, the legal counsel retained for Buenos Aires province is Arnold and Porter, serving as its international counsel, and Puchel Fernandez Maduro and Lombardi, the law firm, as its Argentine counsel, which is confirmed by a release that we accessed at Reorg. It was also reported that Nicholson and Kana will serve as a legal advisor to a committee of sovereign bondholders and that Clifford Chance and Oric as an international advisor. But this was confirmed by a news site, InfoBuy, but we haven't been able to get any uh, comments from the firms. Got it. That's a really helpful rundown. I appreciate it. So just sort of an overview um, in terms of the the connection or some of the connections between the sovereign and province restructuring. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that you've got uh, cross holders uh, between the two groups of debt. Um, the, the president has come out and sort of urged bondholders to sign up for the consent solicitation. Um, and, you know, one of the interesting statistics that I think you threw out there was that roughly 40% of, of Argentine citizens live in the province. So, obviously, a very key strategic um, part of the sovereign restruct- restructuring. Um, and speaking of which, let's turn to that sovereign restructuring. What do you think? people are expecting in terms of, um, you know, a restructuring? What, what kind of consideration are people talking about being, being thrown out there? So the, the growing consensus amongst the sources that we've consulted and the local news sources is that it's going to be between 20 to 30 percent. But there have been rumors of a more aggressive restructuring uh, that especially flared up this week after Stiglitz in a talk given at Davos said that bondholders should be prepared for a significant haircut. Uh, but at the moment, it's still just a conjecture. We looked at a paper uh, at, from the uh, European Central Bank dated from January 2020, which includes a sample of sovereign restructurings from 1994 to 2015. Now, the most aggressive one was, of course, Argentina's 75% haircut in 2005. And then Uruguay restructured 65 bonds in 2003, and the haircut was about 15%. While Greece's notorious 2012 restructured feature, restructuring featured a 55% haircut. It is worth noting that the authors of the paper calculate the haircut based on the following formula. 1 minus present value of new bonds 
present value of old bonds plus arrears were present values calculated based on future cash flows discounted based on an assumed exit yield. In regards to the coupon, the general opinion in the market is that the government will propose an interest rate payment cut. An analyst from a Buenos Aires-based provider of research focused on Latin American capital markets suggested to us that a 50% haircut on all, bootcon, on all bond coupons would be most likely, while others in the market have suggested that the interest rates will be lowered across all notes to low single digits. Citibank, on the other hand, estimates that the interest rate payment cut could be about 65%, because they believe lenders will have to take more pain to get the, Inter the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, to sign on to the deal. Now, in regards to the maturities, the government could propose a four to five year maturity extension. As noted, Citigroup suggested a harsher restructuring with, with maturities being kicked out 10 years. Also, in terms of the grace period, it's been suggested that a two to four year grace period on coupon and principal payments will also uh, be done by the government or proposed. Uh, and multiple sources uh, have told us that that are close to the government. Got it. So, you know, looking at anything ranging from maybe a 20% uh, to 75% haircut um, with broad-based uh, coupon reductions, kicking out the maturities for, you know, four to five years, but in a worst case, maybe 10 years and a two to four year grace period is sort of seems like the, the consensus opinion that's forming, although it's always difficult to tell these things. Um, aside from BA, so going back to the provinces now, um, are there any other provinces that could see a debt reprofiling in the near term? Yes. Uh, last week, the province of Chibut uh, announced that they are going to go through a, a debt restructuring. In a presentation given on January 15th by the economy minister of the province, uh, they announced that they would seek to restructure its debt in order to provide oxygen to the public accounts. Uh, this was according to the economy minister, Oscar Antonina. And then according to provincial figures, the province's total public debt is around $855 million. Now, 85% is guaranteed by oil ro royalties, and that 85% is dominated in U.S. dollars. The province is, is aiming to push out amortizations over the next four years, as well as negotiate lower interest payments. Okay, cool. And what, what kind of a time frame are we looking for, um, are we looking at for these restructurings? So... For the sovereign restructuring, the government is targeting a March 31st deadline. Uh, this is based on an, an interview that Alberto Fernandez gave two weeks ago to a local uh, uh, well-known journalist in Argentina. Um, so that suggests ideally, from the point of view of the Republic, that there should be more clarity or increasing clarity on the Buenos Aires and Chibut negotiations to extend their coupon payments well before March, or it would be difficult to hammer out a deal for the sovereign. But, however, in, in May, in the, sorry, in the middle of December, uh, Guzman, the, the economy minister, said that the March 2020 deadline set forth in a presentation he had given to the United Nations before he was named economy, economy minister should not be referenced. And one source that we talked to said that the agreement, uh, reaching an agreement for the Republic between the Republic and, and bondholders would most likely be finalized by the third quarter of 2020. And this seems more of a, more like a, a realistic 
um, time frame due to the size and, and the nature of the, the undertaking. So an IMF working paper analyzing sovereign debt restructurings from 1950 to 2010, uh, taking for an example, restructuring sampled from 1998, 1998 to 2010 specifically, the shortest total duration was Uruguay in 2003, which took two months and involved 18 bonds, while the longest was Serbia and Montenegro's 44-month restructuring. Now, duration is measured as the time informal creditor negotiations began until the final agreement and the implementation. It is worth noting that on average, restructuring durations have been decreasing over time. Since 1998, restructurings took an average of 13 months, whereas in the 1980s and the 1990s, it took an average of 30 months or so, 30.9 months. Argentina's 2005 exchange was clearly an exception, according to this IMF paper. And finally, where are some of the East sovereign and, and province bonds trading? So the Argentina 6.5% bonds, uh, 2026 notes, are quoted at about 47 and 48. And three months ago, the notes were quoted at around 45, then fell about four to five points to around 40 around mid-November. Buenos Aires' 10.875% uh, bonds due 2021 were trading around 53 months ago and climbed to 70 before declining recently to around 55. Got it. Okay, great. Um, thank you for that overview. That was really helpful. Thank you. Um, Brandon, we will move to the um, Argentine power sector now. Um, we last discussed the sector on the podcast last April before the primaries and elections and uh, everything that's going on now. Um, so what are people saying right now about the industry and what would you say is the biggest risk? Yeah, so with the power sector being so vulnerable uh, to government regulation and, and thus administration changes, people around Argentina and, and the Argentine power industry believe that President Fernandez's administration will probably introduce some some changes on the regulatory front, but, but the majority really don't think that changes should be too major and then should should be more more on the minor the minor end um, additionally any any significant haircuts to fix capacity rates which which some people you know were fearing early on and when um, when President Fernandez took office that the, any type of haircut would would be a, a difficult signal to send to investors in this industry um, because a lot of them um, that we've been, we've been told at least um, also happen to be some of the largest sovereign creditors. Um, but we're, right now, one of the biggest or one of the risks that has been topical around the industry is related to Comesa, which is uh, Argentina's wholesale electricity market administrator. Um, the right now, power generators are saying that payments from distribution companies, uh, companies like Edenor, are limited because of tariff freezes and residential users are only paying about half of the cost of electricity generation. Uh, so Comesa, therefore, you know, Comesa receives the payments from companies like Edenor. Uh, Comesa doesn't have enough money and funds to, with, with, uh, with what distributors are currently charging from households. Um, and, and they're really reliant on government subsidies, but at the same time with, with the government angling to cut its its budget deficit, uh, some industry sources are fearing that subsidies provided to Comesa by the government might be cut. I see. And and where are some of the Argentine power generator bonds trading right now? 
So of the companies that we follow, uh, MSU's $600 million uh, senior secured notes due 2025 are currently trading around 60, 62 to yield about 20%. Uh, Hanea, it's $500 million. 2022 bond is trading at uh, 80, 83.85 to also yield about 20%. Uh, Albanese's $250 million 2023 bond is trading at 65.66, uh, yielding just over 25%. And Pompa Energia's $750 million bond due 2027 is trading at 86.87, yielding just about 10%, while YPF loses bond, uh, or YPF Energia Electrica, uh, its bond, which was issued last year, uh, due 2026 is trading at about 92.93 to yield about 12%. What do you think is driving some of the discrepancy in price? So we think the reason Henea is trading at a higher price maybe because aside from the fact that the bond is the nearest term maturity of this group, uh, it's it's the leading renewables generator in Argentina, uh, which should have a higher dispatch priority than than conventional generators, uh, leading to high, a higher utilization rate. You know, leading to higher variable payments, um, you know, higher cash flows, and Henea's renewable contracts also have a guarantee from the World Bank and with all the um, you know the troubles that Camesa is facing that I discussed uh, investors are probably concerned with Camesa's ability to meet some payments due to generators right now and so that extra uh, World Bank bank guarantee is probably uh, you know what's keeping Henea's prices a little higher um, Albanese on the other hand its expansion projects are currently on hold uh, I mentioned Albanese's bond due 2023 is yielding just over 25%. Um, those project, its co- projects are currently on hold and the company uh, is about $250 million short in terms of funding in order to complete these projects. Uh, additionally, this Albanese has um, more legacy assets which are exposed to Energia Base. Um, and this is the resolution that saw fixed capacity payments get cut last year. Uh, people around the industry also believe that there could be further modifications to the contracts um, under this resolution by the new administration. Uh, Pampa, as as we've discussed in the past, um, and, and we've been following this company for a while, is, is, is a more integrated energy company and is the leading power generator in, in the country in terms of uh, installed capacity. And it also has a, you know, a mix of you know, solid assets that has renewable assets as well as combined cycle plants. Got it. And I saw um, you put out a cash flow model on, um, on MSU last week. Uh, what were some of the key takeaways in terms of the trajectory of the company's cash flows over, you know, say the next five years? Yeah. So, so just to lay the land, um, we have two scenarios that we look at. The first is our base case, which assumes that PPA contracts and fixed capacity payments for MSU will stay intact and, and won't be pacified or, or that means you know, turned from being US dollar linked to Argentine peso linked. Uh, we also assume a slightly higher utiliz- utilization rate than what the company has reported over the last 12 months. About So we project about 65%. Over the last 12 months, they've, they've reported about 40 to 45%. Uh, so this would result in slightly higher variable revenue. Um, on the downside scenario, um, we assume a haircut of about 20, 
on fixed capacity payments due to that pacification risk. And we also assume a lower utilization rate, um, more in line with what the company reported last year. Uh, so in our, in our base case scenario, our you know, main takeaway is we estimate that MSU will be cash cash flow break even on an unlevered basis this year, but with about seventy five million dollars of interest payments due, the country, fi- uh, the I'm sorry, the company faces a shortfall of about seventy five million dollars. Um, we've spoken to a source close to the company, and assuming that MSU does not delay payments to GE, it owes about $103 million this year to GE um, as, as part of uh, some vendor financing. And assuming, So assuming they don't delay payments to GE or other creditors, borrowing options may include uh, additional bank loans. It received about uh, $15 million of bank loans in the third quarter of 2019, so it may you know, look to access those some type those types of loans again, uh, or it could go to the local local market and issue short term notes like some peers have recently, uh, or receive private shareholder support. Uh, so under our base case, like I said, um, or sorry, continuing with with our with our base case, uh, MSU gener- we estimate that MSU will generate positive levered free cash flow in 2021 uh, and, and we'll use that excess cash uh, and, and any and all of the years that we project uh, levered, positive levered free cash flow, which is uh, 2021 and, and on, they'll use that excess cash to, gen- to pay down existing debt. Uh, but in our downside case, the company may need to re- refinance its 2023 private notes uh, next year when, when quarterly installments installment payments begin. Uh, that, that's because the company is currently projected to burn about $35 million of cash on a levered basis. Uh, so it may look, look to push out installment payments of these private notes in order to, um, to obtain some breathing room. Got it. Okay. And what would the, um, what would the biggest risks or roadblocks, um, to a restructuring of those private notes or reprofiling or sort of, you know, however you want to phrase it, um, what would the roadblock be in, in the downside scenario? Yeah, so in the downside scenario, the company's net leverage is projected to be six and a half times in 2021 and will drop only drop to five points, about 5.6 times in 2023. So the company may not have as much uh, you know, negotiating leverage, for lack of a better term, uh, with a more stress balance sheet in this situation. And then in addition, you know, going back to the sovereign restructuring, MSU or, or any peer for that matter could, could face challenges in a refinancing effort related to the ongoing uh, you know, sovereign restructuring. Argentine companies are generally having difficulty accessing the international capital markets right now while the government negotiates its own debt restructuring. And in the case of MSU and a few of the others, um, Hinea and, and Albanese, uh, the, the bonds currently yield over 20%. Uh, so if, if these sovereign negotiations drag on much further than expected, it could uh, it could be more difficult for MSU to refi- refinance its obligations in, uh, in tw- for 2023. Great. And what were your takeaways regarding uh, valuation? Yeah, so with regards to valuation, we use a discount range centered on 20% given the current risk of the sovereign debt negotiations and the vulnerability of the power you know, the, the power generation industry to, to regular changes, regulatory changes like we spoke about. Um, so using a discount range of 15% to 25% 
our base case valuation yields a range of 520 million to just over a billion, uh, which translates to a an enterprise value to last 12 months EBITDA range of 5.3 times to about 10.4 times. Uh, and then the downside scenario yields a range of uh, between 340 million and about 665 million. But something I found interesting interesting was that if the sovereign restructuring goes smoothly and you know, Argentine corporates and the sovereign bonds um, re-rate, then for example, if if the sovereign's exit yield is around 10%, it would probably make more sense to use a discount range of 10 15 10 to 15% for MSU, uh, which would translate to a valuation, valuation similar to our base case, uh, between 600 million, uh, to just over a billion. Got it. That's a, that's a helpful overview. So I guess to summarize, you know, as you said, the main risks, um, right now that everyone's sort of looking at are potential cuts to PPAs, which you, you think, um, are somewhat unlikely, um, except for the more vulnerable, older assets. And then, um, you've also got payment delays by Camesa. Um, but as you point out with regard to valuation, it's really going to depend largely on what happens with the sovereign restructuring. So I guess we will stay tuned, um, and see what happens January 31st, because it seems like whatever goes on with, uh, with the BA province is sort of going to set the tone for how things shape up with the sovereign negotiations. Um, all right. So we will, uh, switch hats now and I will, um, talk about Grantiera and Brandon, you can ask me whatever questions you've got. Awesome. Awesome. So, so yeah, Colombian energy company, uh, Grantiera, you recently put out, um, some, some deeper coverage on that a couple of weeks ago. Can you, can you walk us through the capital structure? Yeah. So there is a, um, 300 million revolving credit facility. Um, it's due in November, 2022. There's, about, there was 57 million drawn as of September 30th. Um, and then there is 600 million of bond debt. You've got six, the six and a quarter senior notes to 25, um, and then seven and three quarter senior notes to 2027. Um, both of those bonds as at least when I last checked, we're yielding um, just under, call it, you know, just under 9%. Um, and there's not a lot of leverage. So about 1.9 turns of leverage and 1.8 turns of net leverage. Um, so yeah, that that's that's sort of, the it's a pretty simple capital structure and that's sort of what it, what it looks like. Got it. So, so leverage under two times, uh, bonds don't mature for net, until 2025 and 2027, uh, the company's got over $240 million of capacity on its uh, revolving credit facility. Um, only $57 million, you said, is drawn under that. Uh, what, are, are there any issues here? Yeah, so the company, um, there, were, there were production declines in the last quarter, um, which were attributed to temporary downtime due to electric semi, sorry, to, due to electric submersible pump replacements, facility commissioning, and a water injection ramp up. Also, the company has been burning cash, although management is forecasting positive free cash flow generation in 2020. Okay, so we could be at an inflection point at some of some sorts. Uh, let's let's talk about that. How much free cash flow 
is management forecasting exactly for this year and, and why do they believe there's going to be a change? Yeah, so CapEx is expected to decline in 2020 as the company has completed its commissioning of uh, the Accordionero's central processing and water injection facilities. And the Accordionero is one of the company's um, main fields. Um, and the company also has finished the installation of um, gas to power turbines, which is what the CFO Ryan Elson said on uh, Grantiera's uh, second quarter call. Um, the production declines in the latest quarter were attributed to temporary downtime due to those submersible pump replacements, as I said. Um, and then also on the third quarter call, Elson said that 25% um, of the company's costs uh, up to November 2019 were power generation costs which are expected to significantly decline in 2020 because the company is going to be using gas to generate power for its facilities. So the the free cash flow um, guidance calls for 60 million to 120 million, and the idea is that the company has uh, spent all of this capex to get the Accordionero field up to a point where it you know is satisfied and thinks that it can in, in sort of produce the full capacity. Um, meanwhile, it's in, invested in um, this, this gas to power uh, generation. And so if you sort of set aside those CapEx costs that the company has already spent investing in the field and then the um, savings on uh, power generation costs, the, the OPEX savings, um, setting that all to putting that all together, coupled with the expected production increase, is expected to result in the uh, transition to free cash flow positive. Um, so to put that CapEx in context, the budget's calling, um, the budget that was released on December 10th, is calling for 200 million to 220 million of CapEx. CapEx in 2018 was 347 million, and LTM CapEx was just under 400 million. So that sort of goes to show you how much um, the company sort of, ex the company expects to cut its capex going forward. Got it. And and in your story, you show under fifteen thousand barrels per day of production at the comp at uh, at the Accordionero field. Uh, has there been any updates since then from Columbia's National Agency of Hydrocarbons? Yeah, there has. Um, but actually, I'm going to quote the company's numbers um, because the company has put out an update as well. So. At the Accordionero field, uh, production rose by about 9.7% um, in, in November from the previous month um, to 14,136 barrels of oil per day. Uh, sorry, um, the production rose from 14,136 barrels per day um, to about 15,513 barrels of oil per day in November. So the most recent figure was a 9.7% month-over-month increase. Um, and since November 21st, 2019, the field has averaged about 16,000 barrels of oil per day. So, you know, it seems like we don't have um, the most recent sort of December figures, but it seems like based on what the company has released, that yes, indeed, uh, the water flooding techniques are working um, and you've got to pick up in, in production at that Accordionero field. Right. Nice. So, uh, so, so looks like production is, is on the uprise and, you know, companies is promising free cash flow positive for 2020 and, and the big uh, CapEx cut. Um, so that's, it's definitely um, you know, 
seems promising and we'll see. We'll see. We'll have to just keep an eye on the company for, for 2020. And I think that's a wrap on Gran Tierra. Um, thank you everyone for listening and back to you, Connor. Thanks team. And thank you as always for listening to another reorg weekly review. Find all of our podcasts on the site media page, iTunes, or SoundCloud. This has been the Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelton.